All right. Well, I owe you all a big, big thank you for allowing me to teach this class. Um, whenever you put your mind to put something together like this, it's a major undertaking. And um, so this, this quarter, this 13 weeks, this is our 13th class together. Um, it has been a, a great process for me to go through, and I have tried to um, go back each week and rethink, and sometimes that's generated some emails that I know are have been quite lengthy. Uh, I don't know if anybody reads them, but they were very helpful to me to kind of put myself together and put my mind together and make sure I'm... Um, Thinking this clearly, I go back to the scriptures, make sure I'm understanding the scriptures correctly. Sometimes I'll go through and realize that I've said the same thing seven or eight times, which is Lowell and I were talking, you know, you, you start writing a book. This thing's got 19 chapters. It's 300 and something pages. And you forget what you said in chapter three, you know, and you get to chapter nine and you're repeating chapter three, you know, and it's just. And nothing frustrates me more than these authors who do that. You read their books and it's like, this is the same book. It just got a different title, you know. Um, it does. It does. Yeah. And you remember the scripture was not written to be to be read. It was written to be heard. And so a lot of the techniques, like in John's Apocalypse, John's Revelation, um, it is very repetitive. But anyway, that's that's well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I've got an alarm set for 715 because I want it when it goes off. I want to wherever we are in the review, I want to move forward and close out about 10 minutes. I'm going to give myself at least 10 minutes um, to close out with some of the things. Um, you know, what's at stake? What what difference does it make? We're talking about a sinner's faith in Christ which has been the marching battle cry for 500 years. And I am taking the lead of several people who are working in this area saying, wait a minute, I think there's more to it than that. We have focused on a sinner's faith in Christ, and it has skewed what I called in the very beginning our trajectory, our paradigm. A sinner's faith in Christ has now become the the this the end all, the panacea, and in my opinion, it when you go to the Scripture with that paradigm in mind, you miss some very important things that, particularly Paul, is saying about what God is doing, and I think if you back up and you look at it. Without that paradigm, it does make a difference. And there are some things that are important that need to be emphasized that maybe haven't been emphasized in the past. And of course, from my perspective, if you, if you focus on faith only and you're, you're coming at it from the perspective of what that does for the sinner, that's when God makes the sinner righteous. That's when God saves the sinner that's also how God makes the sinner righteous. Now you've got the beginning of a paradigm that's going to get completely off course, which is exactly what's happened. 
Because now, what's repentance? What does repentance mean? If it's faith alone, then what role does repentance play? What, what place does the confession of Jesus as Lord play? And of course, in my book, what role does Christian baptism play? Well, it's all got to be jettisoned. If all that matters is the sinner's faith in Christ. And so that's what I'm trying to offer a uh, corrective to, um, to bring us back to the center. So I want to go through and review and answer any questions. So I may do this relatively quickly. We've got about 30 minutes. So in, in this class, in this study, um, I don't know why this thing does this. It works, and then I turn it on and I leave it, and then it stops working. Weird. Uh, we, the word justified. Now we said it, when when you when you start looking at the scripture, you know, forgiveness of sin, um, remission of sin, removal of sin. Uh, becoming a child of God, uh, be with me today in paradise, um, eternal life is John's favorite word. Um, you know, it's something that happens now. It's happened. God has accomplished it. That's why Jesus could say, your sins are forgiven. That was shocking. Shocking in his day. Only God can forgive sins. And that's only going to happen at the end of time. Um, eternal life, according to John. You have it. It's a present possession in his letter, first letter, chapter 5. I write these things so that you may know, K-N-O-W, that you have eternal life. Now, when we get to Paul, he uses this word, justified. And I've, I tried to show you that there's some history there because as the scriptures came from Greek into Latin into English, and there were a lot of languages in between, obviously, there was no English word that was the equivalent of what Paul was trying to say. And so what they did is they borrowed a Latin word and they made it an English word. They baptized it into English. They anglicized it. And they came up with the word justified. And I said, really, what they should have done is made up an entirely new word and, and said righteousified. Righteousified. Because the meaning is it's, it's being made righteous before God or uh, to be set right, to be made right with God. And then it's, it's very closely connected with the Old Testament idea of being made holy. What did God tell his people from the very beginning? Deuteronomy. You shall be holy because I am holy. Now that comes across in English and it comes into the Greek as an imperative. But in the original language, when he said it in Deuteronomy, it's not an imperative at all. It is a promise. You will be holy because I am holy and I will make you my people. And it has its root in the very promise of God that, that 
and that's where we're going to end up in 30 minutes. I'm going to quit. We're going to, I'm going to show you that. But, but from the beginning, that's what I've tried to make clear in this study. And of course, the word saint comes from the word hagios, which is holy in Greek. A hagioi, the hagioi, plural, are saints. The hagioi in Ephesus are the saints, literally the holy ones in Ephesus. The ones who have been made holy. Well, how have they been made holy? By, by their lifestyle? No. By their behavior? No. Could holiness and sainthood come from sanctification rather than justification? They're, they're all related words, yes. So I'm not sure I'm understanding your question. If I were teaching, I would stop with set right. Okay. And I would put holy and sainthood under sanctified. But that's just a difference. And I don't know that it makes any difference. Okay. So. Okay. And it, by the way, if you if I did a uh, review sheet just for my own benefit, so if I ever teach the class in the future, I'll have it. <coughs> and so if you looked at that, these are the these are the um, answers to that review sheet. So we took a look at the New Testament presentation of baptism early on in the study. That's one of the first chapters. Uh, Matthew, um, his perspective. He says that Jesus, when he, when he had been crucified, he was buried for three days. He rose on the third day. He spent 40 days working with people, making appearances before people, and then 10 days later, um, he ascended, correct? Is that right or no? He ascended on the 40th day. I always get that confused. He ascended on the 40th day, then the day of Pentecost, the 50th day. Anyway, right before his ascension, he gave his church what? The Great Commission. And what did he include in that Great Commission? Go into all, yeah, go into all the world, preach the good news, the euangelion, this new message about how God has now fulfilled his promise and make disciples, make them followers of this new way by baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always. Mark's version of that was believe and, uh, believe and be baptized. Whoever believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now Luke doesn't talk about baptism in the Christian dispensation. Luke uses the term baptism, but it always refers to the baptism of John. John is the same way with the exception of the discussion in chapter 3. And what is that discussion? The new birth, which the early church for 400 years said, well, that's what Jesus was talking about. Is there anything in, in the teaching of Jesus handed down to us by the apostles that involves newness of life, water, and the Holy Spirit of God? Well, of course, Christian baptism. Um, so, and then we looked at Acts, every, every conversion in the book of Acts, except this one in chapter 17. Whoever came to become a member of this new community, 
was baptized per Luke, with the exception of this one little verse where he, you know, he, Paul was in Athens, and then right at the end of the chapter he says, and oh, Dionysus and another woman, I can't remember her name, became believers and followed Paul. Uh, and it doesn't say that they were baptized, which is kind of unusual, but it's there. So uh, Romans, of course, and Ephesians, all these letters, we went through all of those. Um, any reason to, to talk any more about that? Okay, so the church's view, and we looked at pretty extensively writings outside the New Testament that date into the 400s, that Christian baptism marked the sinner's initiation into the church or into the community of believers, into the body of Christ. It marked the sinner's new birth that Jesus discussed in chapter 3 of John. And it was for the remission of sins. The early church fathers used that language consistently. And so when we get to 325, the, the, the first major creed of the church, and then as it was revised toward the end of that century in Constantinople, what does it declare? We believe in the one baptism for the remission of sins. And this was in at the, about the year 400. We don't have a lot of documentation of what the church was doing in the so-called Dark Ages, but when the church came out of the Dark Ages, guess what the church believed? Same thing. So this is uh, pretty much what Christian uh, Christians have understood about baptism for a long, long time. This new stuff that we're going to talk about in a minute, you know, ask Jesus into your heart. You're saved by faith alone. Nothing else is, you know, in Christian baptism, getting jettisoned as a part of the conversion process. That is a new innovation in the history of Christianity. There's no reason for us to, uh, to back away from that. That's the historical fact. Now, what has made Christian baptism the boogeyman? Because it is the boogeyman. In most evangelical churches today, you go to the pastor and you say, I want to be baptized. And they'll say, okay, come back on Easter. Or, you know, okay, we have a baptismal service. No, I want to be baptized right now. And if he asks, well, why? And you say, because I think it's for the remission of my sins and I want my sins removed. You've just unleashed the boogeyman. What caused that? What caused such a reaction within the Christian world? I have argued two things. The practice of infant baptism that's, that was first. Historically, the practice of Christian baptism came first. It, began, it begins showing up about the year 250. And then later... When Augustine begins to hammer out his doctrine of original sin in the early 400s, he uses the practice of infant baptism that's been around for about 150 years to justify his doctrine of original sin. Now, a lot of people think that that came reversed, but it's not. Historically, the practice of infant baptism came long before the doctrine of original sin. Well, what does this do? 
These two doctrines isolate baptism from the other components of the conversion process. And when you isolate baptism alone, then you get uh, some really interesting ideas about Christian baptism, some very uh, distorted views of what Christian baptism is and does. And that's exactly what happened. And that's why it's now the boogeyman. Because if you start going back and saying, yeah, but Christian baptism plays an essential role in the conversion process, what they hear is, oh, you're going back to the to the boogeyman. Well, okay, so the, the side question that we traced out a little bit is, did the New Testament church practice infant baptism? Well, if we're honest, which I always want us to be honest, if, if you just look at the, the data that's revealed in the New Testament, the, the best answer is, I don't know. It's inconclusive. Now, and in the review sheet, I said, let's play devil's advocate. What's the best argument that the New Testament church did practice infant baptism? Go ahead. Some was converted and then their whole family. Very good. Household, which is the Greek word oikos. And so it happens a few times. The, the mention is there. But is it conclusive? No. You know, and then there's all kinds of studies. Okay, in the Jewish culture, would an infant be included in the household? Yeah. And then if you look at circumcision... Did they circumcise male infants? Yeah. So now you're, now you're starting to piece together this sort of tenuous argument. Okay? But that's the best argument you could make. Is it conclusive? I don't think so. Now, let's play, let's play the other side. What's the best argument that the New Testament church did not practice infant baptism? Thou 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 What's that? Thou thou okay. When Philip told the eunuch, here's water, what hinders me to be baptized. So believing seems to be, and of course Jesus says he that believes and is baptized. Yeah. I couldn't understand. Okay. I wouldn't think. Okay, very good. It never says an infant was baptized. Yeah, it never does. That's right. So, so both sides of the issue are looking at what data is available and trying to make your best argument. And I think this argument is the better argument. Obviously, I agree with it. The process seems to exclude infants. How, how, does, a, how does an infant repent? How does an infant understand the message of Jesus so that the infant, I mean, first of all, the infant is not capable of confessing Jesus as Lord, correct? So where, what I say in the book and what I've said in a lot of the emails that I've sent out, I, I think this could involve children, what we would say children, perhaps pretty young children, but I definitely think the process excludes infants. That's, that's the best I can say about it. Okay. 
So here are the nine categories. This is what I did in one of my appendices. Um, so what I tried to do is I tried to go through and say, look, there's a lot going on. You know, we reduced it to five, right? You know why we got five. There you go. You got a stump and you got a Bible in one hand and you got five fingers on the other. So, so a lot of our, our teaching uh, mechanisms are five. But if you look at it, you can argue that there's at least seven and perhaps nine. So there, there's a proclamation of the gospel story. There's a hearing of the, you know, Paul talks about how they're going to hear unless someone said. And, and implicit in that is what you said, an understanding. There's a story that's coming from a completely different perspective of what the world. Jesus is not a Roman criminal punished for his crimes under the Roman government. Jesus, the Son of God, sinless, offered as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of humanity. And so you've got to understand those distinctions and the implications. And you've got to believe it, Gary. Trust it. And, and belief is more than just mental assent in the Bible. It's You're acting upon it. You're forming a life according to this new perspective. You're entering into an entirely new way of living, which involves the repentance. You're turning from the old and you're submitting to the new. You're confessing Jesus is Lord, not only of your life, but according to this message, God has made Jesus Lord of the entire creation. And you confess personal sin. I don't know, and I said this when we, when we covered this, I don't know that that's ever presented as a part of the process of becoming a Christian, but it's certainly a part of the Christian lifestyle, correct? Being baptized, calling on his name, Romans 10. Now, you know, when, uh, when Luke has Paul recounting his conversion and his baptism, he says that it almost as if Luke has Paul equating calling on his name with being baptized. So I don't know how that works out. And then, of course, remaining faithful unto death. So here's my point. You've got these components, if you will, these categories of what it means to be a Christian. And the problem with when you, when you isolate, which is exactly what happened under the, the we, I say the, the Roman Catholic, but it was an evolution that occurred, but it began with the practice of infant baptism. So now you've eliminated repentance, you've, repent, you know, you've eliminated faith, although the, the, the real teaching is it was the faith of the parents, it was the faith of the community that was later confirmed in the baptism. But the point is, you turn baptism into a sacrament. It's an action that, that functions ex opere operato, which means by the working of the, the work itself. So you get to the point where all that has to happen is the magic water, if you will, has to come in contact with the baby. Even if the baby is still in the birth canal and abracadabra, alakazam, you've remitted human sin. Okay, that's a problem. That view of Christian baptism is a problem, is it not? And we agree that it's a problem. It overemphasizes one component of the process 
it eliminates and or distorts the other components. So we're in agreement that we have a problem. But what I don't want to happen is the baby get thrown out with the baptismal water, right? And that's exactly what has happened. So here's the point that I tried to make in the class. When, when our friends in the Christian world object to our insistence that Christian baptism has a role to play in the conversion process, they come at us with a set of objections. And I want us to remain intellectually honest and admit that the objections to infant baptism are valid. They're valid. But here's the problem. 99.9% .9 of the time when one of our faith-only friends are objecting to our presentation of baptism, they are objecting with arguments against infant baptism. And here's what I'm saying. Applying those valid arguments against infant baptism to adult believer baptism is not logically valid. And so I think, again, one of the reasons I've written this book is to try to give us a paradigm within which to work and a vocabulary to use when we get into those discussions, instead of our voices just getting louder and, our, and us starting to, to pound the table, we need to point this out. The objection you're making is to infant baptism, not to adult believer baptism. Because infant baptism, making in the sacrament, eliminating all of the other components makes baptism meaningless and it radically alters the way we read the New Testament. And that's exactly what has happened in the Christian world today. For the most part, Christian baptism has no meaning unless it's to join the local church and it alters the way the New Testament is written and here is read and understood. And here's what I want to say. It pits, it pits one inspired author against another. And if you and if you're careful in these conversations, that is exactly what will happen. They will go to certain authors, and when they get to other authors, those authors will, and those particular statements will be discounted or jettisoned completely. So let me give you an example. What I'm proposing in this book is what we've been proposing for 200 years, right? We've got to read these things together. I mean, Mark is an inspired writer, correct? Again, you, you, you know, there's argument that the last 12 verses are not inspired scripture. Okay, fine. Then throw them out on that basis. But don't throw them out on the basis that Mark isn't talking about baptism. That's the argument I made. Peter has, uh, Luke has Peter saying that you have to repent and be baptized. Well, 
Luke has Peter not even mentioning faith. And then you've got Romans 10, 9, you've got Paul saying you've got to believe and confess Jesus Lord to be saved. And the point is, what are we going to do with this characteristic of sacred scripture? Are we going to pit Mark against Peter? Are we going to pit Paul against both of them? Is that the way we should read the, the, the sacred scriptures? No, of course not. If, if believe and be baptized, repent and be baptized, believe and confess the Lord as Jesus as Lord are all revealed through the Holy Spirit, through these three different people, then what should God's people be saying is required? Belief, repentance, confession, and baptism, right? Doesn't that make sense? To me, is there any other way to do this? All right, so that's what we... Okay, then we moved on to first thing. I'm going to try to move a little quicker. We've got about 10 minutes. So the difference between the first sin and original sin. The first sin describes an act. They took the fruit from the from the forbidden the tree that had been forbidden and they ate it. That's an act. The, the doctrine of original sin is not talking about that act. It's talking about what that act caused. Original sin is talking about a state of existence. What happened? As Augustine said, the first sin caused original sin. And this is in conformity with Scripture. Paul says in Romans 3.23, All have sinned, which is an heiress verb, past completed action, and fall short of the glory of God. That's a present condition. And so wrestling with that leads us, you know, and I gave you my view of original sin. Here's, here's my view. The first sin caused God to separate himself. He could not remain in the presence of sin. And so he took his presence and his grace, which is his power, resulting in what I would call spiritual death. Now, this act also introduced physical death the fear of which enslaves humanity, according to the Hebrew writer. And so another consequence was the earth was cursed. And so that made the environment hostile to human survival. God said, you're going you're gonna to make your living by the sweat of your brow. You know, it's not going to be the joy of out there tending the garden. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bring forth thorns and thistles. And so human life, and so the result is my belief. This is my view. You come to your own view. <laughs> my belief is that it is in this environment, it is impossible for human beings not to sin. That's in the negative. Said it, stated in the positive. It is not possible for any human being to live a sinless life in this environment. And I get... Uh, the result. Humans are turned in on themselves. They're self-absorbed. They're striving for survival. They're fearful of death and aging. Uh, the result is it's impossible for ordinary humans to not sin. And this is what Paul. This is how Paul uh, verbalizes it. If righteousness could come 
from the law, which would require living a perfect life, then Christ died for nothing. If we could have done this on our own, Christ didn't need to come. And the fact that Christ did come is proof that we could never do it on our own. Okay, so baptism after original sin removed the taint of original sin and removed prior sins. It turned the sinners toward God, but it all post-baptismal sin dealt with was through the sacrament of penance. And the fire was waiting for a spark. So a sinner could avoid some or all of the temporal punishment for sin through an indulgence. And this were in the medieval period now, about the 1400s. Many reformers in the 1400s began to object to indulgences. Martin Luther went ballistic um, when they began to be sold to raise money for projects like the Basilica in Rome. And so in posting his 95 theses on the door of All Saints Church, he ignited what has been referred to as the Protestant Reformation. So they hammered this out. Again, they're reacting to a, a practice and doctrines, and they come up with the five solas. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Fide, Faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solo Cristo, Christ alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to God's glory alone. Fine battle cry. I mean, a fine battle cry. But we're going to talk about it in a minute. It has its logical issues. It started a new trajectory that has not been altogether healthy. Okay? And I said that from the beginning. The trajectory continues on, and then some cataclysmic event occurs, the Protestant Reformation, and it switches the course of the trajectory. Now, I want to quickly, I said, I, a whole chapter I spent on this. Did Martin Luther jettison baptism? No. But Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, who came immediately after, did. But it was logically inevitable that Christian baptism would be jettisoned at this moment. Why? Because of the emphasis on a sinner's faith alone. A sinner is made righteous by God by the sinner's faith alone in Christ alone. Logically, baptism no longer has any role to play in the process. Martin Luther didn't say that, but those who came immediately after him did and said it. So, and here's the point, and then I'm going to skip the rest of this and get to the end. Here's the main flaw. Here's the main flaw in the, in the, the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation. The answer to the, the book, in the book I wrote, I'm saying, I want us to think about when God makes a sinner righteous, and I want us to think about how God makes a sinner righteous. Those are two distinct questions that need to be answered separately. The flaw in the Protestant Reformation is the two answers got conflated into one. When does God make a sinner righteous? How does God make a sinner righteous? 
the sinner's faith in Christ. And the, the result is an entire category of human faith has been overlooked in our New Testaments. And here's a diagram, and I'm about to quit and move on to the end. This is all review. So Paul says in Romans 3.22, he says this eight times. The righteousness of God is through the faith of Jesus Christ. That's the King James. The righteousness of God is available, literally moves into all those believing ones. And what I've tried to point out this entire quarter is there are two categories of human faith being discussed here. The perfect faith of the perfect human being and the imperfect faith of imperfect human beings. When those two things got conflated in the Protestant Reformation, that's where the conversation got off track. Okay, what is the difference? The sinner's faith in Christ moves the sinner into Christ. The New Testament also says that a sinner is baptized into Christ. And so using our proposed method, how does a sinner get into Christ? Well, they at least have to believe into Christ, and they also have to be baptized into Christ. So we combine those two things. Once the, once the sinner is in Christ, then God makes that sinner righteous based on the faith or faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's what I think the New Testament is saying. Here it is in one verse. Knowing that a man, a human being, gender neutral, not talking about man alone, he's talking about male, he's talking about the human race, is not justified, made right, or made righteous by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed, even we Jews have believed into Jesus Christ, so that, why Paul, why have we believed into Jesus Christ? So that we might be justified, made righteous by the faith of Christ. That's what the Greek says, that's what the Latin says, that's what the English said for 328 years. That was a whole chapter, a whole, a whole uh, evening of discussion. 1375, the first translation of this comes into, into English as the faith of Christ. Wycliffe's Bible, Tyndale's Bible, from 1535 to 1611, 100% of English Bibles say in these eight instances, what makes a sinner righteous before God? The faith of Christ. Now, what happens? Well, the Protestant Reformation starts to gain root. In 1703, Daniel Whitby is the first Whitby is the first person who translates it a sinner's faith in Christ. And he is diving back into the argument and the conversation that had taken place during the Protestant Reformation. And so these verses are now retranslated. And wherever Paul says made righteous by the faith of Christ are translated to say made righteous by faith in Christ, which changes everything. Daniel Mace, and so for 178 years, these two alternatives run side by side, and my research shows it's about 50-50. It's a dead heat. Now, in 1881, the English committee, the Anglican committee, got together. They invited some Americans over to participate, but they revised the King James. 
remember the King James says in all of these instances the faith of Christ and every single one of them were changed in 1881 to say a sinner's faith in Christ and that was it that was it that opened the floodgates so that today the, the landscape is changing, but most English, at least the major English translations, conceal the entire issue. You can't even find it unless you go to some of the uh, translations I've pointed out. Have you thought of um, going to other churches and giving this lesson? Because I need to, huh? What? No. I need to. Because I think it's really scary to be sitting here and thinking of all the people that are being misled. Yeah. See, where does Paul want to be found? This is this is the first verse in English that was ever translated into English uh, that it, that we know of. I count all things in the law. This is Philippians three nine. I don't want to be found in my religiosity. I don't want to be found in my anything. I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ. That's the key. Now, here, I want to end with this, okay? I can't read that. I know, I know, but I'm skipping a lot of this. What difference does it make? Here are, the, here are the things that I talk about in the book. What difference does it make, really? Um, well, the witch theory of atonement debate is calmed. I don't want to talk about that. You can read my book. The humanity of Jesus is brought into its proper perspective. That's important. Jesus was a human being. 100% human. And what he did as a human reverses what the first Adam did as a human. That's the message of the New Testament. Jesus is the last Adam. He is the progenitor of a new creation that God is working. So here's where I want to end our time. We have 10 minutes. It's perfect. What difference does it make? What if we look at this, that Jesus as a human being accomplished what God has been trying to accomplish from the beginning. It affirms the faithfulness of God. See, a major theme of the Bible is the righteousness of God. It goes back into the Old Testament and it, and it keys on this this is a, a critical Hebrew word in the Hebrew Bible. Chesed is the, how you would pronounce it in English. It talks about God's covenant loyalty, his everlasting loyalty, his faithfulness, his loving kindness, his unfailing love, his mercy, his grace. We could go on and on and on and never fully capture what this word is trying to say. But here's the issue, okay? Right in the right in the beginning, before they're even out of the garden, they've committed the first sin, 
They've brought all these terrible consequences upon themselves, and God already makes a promise. And, I mean, he makes a statement of fact, and it reveals what he intends to do. And what is that? He is going to work out his plan. And what is he going to use to work out his plan? The seed of the woman. In other words, a human being. God is going to accomplish his eternal purpose and reverse everything that went wrong in the first creation. How's he going to do it? Through a human being. But here's the problem. I mean, he says in Genesis 12, I'll use Abram. Did Abram pan out? Abram didn't work out, did he? And so now he raises up an entire nation. He says, I'm going to use this nation of people, this kingdom of priests, this holy nation. Did Israel work out? Israel proved to be unfaithful. Adam proved to be unfaithful. Abram proved to be unfaithful. Israel, everybody within Israel, 2 Samuel 7, hundreds of years later, he says, hey, I am still faithful to my covenant. I am going to do this thing, and I'm going to do it through you, David. How did that work out? David rise to the occasion? David proved to be unreliable, to be unfaithful. How? Here's the question. Go ahead. But his seed was good. His seed was good? His seed was good. Solomon was good. How about Jesus Christ? Okay, thank you. Here's the, here's the dilemma that Paul is wrestling with. Through whom would God keep his promise? If God's, if God's promise is to reverse the consequences of the first Adam's sin through a human being, which human being is God going to use? Thank you. And so that's exactly what Paul describes. In Romans, he talks about the unrighteousness of all humanity. He talks about the Gentiles in chapter 1, that God gave them over because why? They were completely unfaithful. Yeah, but they didn't have the law. Paul says it doesn't matter. They had the law within them. They were not faithful to what they knew about God. And the, and the Jews over there going, go get them, Paul, go get them, Paul. And then chapter 2 opens, right? And what does Paul say to the Jews? You're no better. <clears throat> You are no better. You too, Jew, O oh man, are without excuse. Because what benefit is it to be a Jew? It's all kinds of benefit. You have the written oracles of God. What's the problem? You're unfaithful to them. So by the time he gets to chapter 3, God's promise, a human being is going to solve this dilemma. Well, there's not one human being capable yet. And so that's what Paul deals with in chapter 3. He says, here's Israel, humanity, unfaithful, every man a liar, our unrighteousness, he talks about, 
my life, he talks about. Now, what does he do? He compares that to God Almighty. And here's my point. Through the humanity of Jesus, what does he say about God's faithfulness as expressed through the humanity of Jesus? He's faithful. God will be found to be true. The righteousness of God in contrast to the unrighteousness of humanity. The truthfulness of God in contrast to lying and untruthfulness. So here's, here's the solution. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief, that this is an interesting expression, isn't it? Make the faith of God without effect? That's the King James. How does the New International have it? What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Will the fact that the human race is unfaithful, does that mean that God will not or cannot keep his promise? No. Here's a worthy statement. Paul says to the young Timothy, if we are faithful, Faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And that's the point that I'm trying to bring to our attention. How did God do this? He doesn't do it through religious movements. He doesn't do it through church-going people. He does it through Jesus Christ, his son. Through his faithfulness. Sin has no power over you. God has absorbed it in its entirety. You are right with God. Because Jesus makes you so. God no longer holds sin against you. We've got three minutes. Here's, here's what I want to do to close the class. I, again, I hope it's been as uh, good for you as it's been good for me. Here's the point. When we live our lives before a fallen world, we need to constantly make sure that the message we are presenting with our words and with our deeds is that Jesus Christ is the only answer to the human condition. And so what I want you to do, I'm going to speak you out with a blessing. I wrote this today for you. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes and listen to this. Child of God, listen to my words. Allow them to penetrate deep into your heart. May they move through your mind into your heart and pierce even to the depths of your soul. May they bring you comfort and strength and joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin has no power over you. God has absorbed it entirely. Human sin no longer plays a role in God's new creation. For scripture declares, for while we were helpless,
Christ died for us. You are right with God. Jesus Christ has made you right with God. This reconciliation happened by the grace of God while we were enemies with God at his initiative. He started the reconciliation and he completed the reconciliation all while you and I were absorbed in our own lives, indifferent to what God wanted. And much more, since we have now been reconciled, will we, how much more will we be preserved and made to flourish through the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, who sits at God's right hand, interceding for us and representing us before our Father in heaven? God no longer imputes sin to you. You are in Christ. Remember, child of God, our gracious Heavenly Father made us this promise thousands of years ago. A new covenant is coming, he said, one in which my holiness and the unholiness of my creation can and will be reconciled. There's only one way such a reconciliation can take place. God must deal with human sin and he has for scripture says as far as the eastern horizon is from the west so he removes the guilt of our rebellion from us he's not only forgiven us he no longer remembers our sins and listen to this carefully your creator is not keeping track of your sins he has nailed them to the cross of Jesus Christ. They do not exist. And therefore, you are the people of God, holy, righteous, and perfect. You are saints. For thousands of years, God has promised his people that he would make them a holy nation. Well, right now, with your eyes closed, I want you in your mind's eye to look around this room and realize that you are sitting among those holy people. You are those holy people. You have been made holy and blameless and spotless in Christ. The powers and principalities have been dethroned. Dethroned. The world in which you live is overcome by evil. Your father knows that. He knows that you struggle to make your way, but be of good cheer. Our Savior has overcome the world. The powers have been disarmed and the principalities are in fear for their lives. Resist them children of God, and they will flee from you. They must flee from you. You are God's child, and he has his shield of protection around you. Trust him, my child. Trust him no matter what comes. His love for you knows no bounds. And finally, death cannot harm you. Your life is hidden in Christ. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. You have nothing to fear. And so as we leave here, go with God. Be at peace with God. Be at peace with one another. When you doubt, don't look to yourself for comfort. Don't look to yourself to feel right with God. Instead, look to Jesus Christ and him crucified for all comfort. Trust Turn. Go back to him. He has made you right with God. And as long as you trust that, he will keep you right with God forever.
now to the one who is able to keep you from falling and to cause you to stand rejoicing without blemish before in his glorious presence. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for a great class. Thank you for letting me teach. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.